Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Tonight's going to be a little different than we normally run things on Sunday mornings for several reasons. Uh, But part of that is that we won't be reading a single portion of Scripture. We're going to think about the imagery of this piece and then consider it in light of the Incarnation. That means that we'll end up with a sort of assortment of text, kind of a web of biblical texts that form a framework for our discussion. Now, some of you may already be familiar with this piece, and if not this piece, maybe the artist himself. Some of you might be fans, and if you're honest, some of you might be very disappointed that we started with something abstract. But in any event, you are here with us now. Microphone or no. But now that you're here, you're stuck with us. And this work, whether it's intended this way or not, touches profoundly on the great themes of the Incarnation. Now, regardless of your familiarity with this work or the artist, a little bit of background will probably be helpful as we think about it together. This won't always be the case in our series, but this particular artist, Mako Fujimura, is a Christian. In fact, he's a ruling elder in our own denomination. Now, the name of the piece, Precious Grace, probably has several points of connection, not just to the piece itself, but also to the gospel of hope for the artist. And one of them is the quite literal cost, both in money and really in just sheer tedium that it takes to create a piece like this. Mako studied in Japan to learn the ancient art of Nihonga, It's a 12th century Japanese technique for creating and using pigments. Now, his paintings are probably as much and possibly more about the process of creating them than they are about the finished product. Each piece starts with him making his own unique paper. He makes the paper out of several different natural pulps that he mixes together. And after he makes the paper, he makes his own paint. He uses imported pigments. He uses rare and semi-precious minerals and metals that he crushes by hand and mixes together to make his own pigments by hand. When he was was studying in Japan, he estimated that he spent around two months of his living expense stipend just for the raw materials to make a single piece Now, you can't see it because we projected it, but to give you a little bit of scale, this piece is actually about five feet tall, and it's about three and a half feet wide if you were to see the original. So that means that little gold tenon that comes across that top portion of the picture is really about two inches thick and almost two feet long. He actually used gold leaf to create it, real gold on the surface of the painting, And because of the way that Mako makes his own pigments, because of the precious and semi-precious metals and minerals that he crushes and puts in them, you can kind of see it here. You can kind of see through them to the other colors beneath. Each pigment is translucent, and it actually refracts light like a prism. 
Unfortunately for you, I'm told that this is an effect that's completely lost unless you're viewing one in person. So my apologies up front, but we didn't think we could swing a private viewing for you this evening. Now, in, in any case, as we think about the process, the process that goes into making a piece like this and the Incarnation actually share quite a bit in common. They share things in the sense that both came at great personal cost. In patience, in submission, in diligence, and in sacrifice. And as much as I want to stand up here and wax eloquent about the process that I really know nothing of, And as much as I want you to appreciate all the pain that goes into making a piece like this, tonight I want us to consider the final product. I want us to consider the image that's before you on the screen. Abstract pieces like this rarely represent individual objects or events. And for some of us, that's very frustrating. But when done well, they can overwhelm us with emotion and themes that they communicate. Now, to put my cards on the table up front, I actually really like this piece. I really like the style when it's done well, and I think that this piece in particular is particularly striking and beautiful. I think there's a lot that's very aesthetically pleasing about this piece on its own. And a lot of the beauty lies in the juxtaposition and juxtaposition at several levels between the dark background and the golden foreground. In terms of darkness and light, in terms of order, the majority of the painting, while well-balanced, is actually kind of this disordered violence. And each of the layers that are translucent kind of run frenetically across the surface and they oppress the layers underneath them. Except for that singular golden ribbon that just comes out meticulously and triumphantly over the top of all of them. You can see the juxtaposition in just the order and the direction of the colors. If you look at the dark background, you'll notice that all of the pigments are running sort of gravitationally toward the bottom. But then that singular golden ribbon just moves defiantly and horizontally across the plane. The background is really, I think, a graphic telling of our story. It's a graphic telling of our story in the curse. I don't just mean this at a global level. I don't mean in the sense that we might imagine war or hunger or the chaos of systemic greed. I mean that this tells the story of the curse inside us. Now, Mako painted this in the late 90s. And he lives about three blocks from where the World Trade Center collapsed. So several years after he had painted this, in reflecting on his art in general, 
And in reflecting on the terrorist attack, he summed it up very well. He says this, I live in the place called Ground Zero, so I am fully aware of the wasteland and devastations that are out there, even inside of my heart, the very brokenness that we experience. You don't need me this evening to tell you about brokenness or what it's like to be your own personal ground zero. You don't need me to tell you this because you live out in the world. Every day, all day long, you brush up against brokenness. A couple of weeks ago, I was on a trip and I ran into an old friend of mine and he told me one of the most tragic and most disturbing stories of abuse that I had ever heard. It had to do with members of his extended family. He told me about nieces and nephews that had suffered some of the most horrific physical and sexual abuse I'd ever heard of at the hands of family friends and even other members of the extended family. And the worst part about that kind of brokenness, the worst part about his story was the silence. Parents who kept silent and didn't want to talk about it. They wanted to ignore it. They didn't even want to tell potential prey in the family because of the stigma and the shame that are attached to it. While stories like this might make your eyes water and they might turn our stomachs, The sin inside us is no less repulsive. It is no less damaging. You and I are no less ground zeros than ground zero itself. And the truth is, you don't just walk around in brokenness out in the world. You don't just walk in it, you swim in it. And you don't just brush up against it. We actually go to great pains to spin out our own little versions of it. But the good news in our story is that God did not keep silent. He wasn't shamed or embarrassed into holding his tongue. It's like I read in our opening liturgy. The Lord refuses to keep silent for our sake. Now, in promising the Messiah and the return of the glory of Israel, God's people, we've seen themes of that in our liturgy this evening. Our liturgy was taken from Isaiah 60. The chapter starts this way. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness all the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. Isaiah announces the coming of the Lord. He announces the Messiah and His salvation the same way that Mako inserted this golden ribbon into his peace. 
comes in as this sort of brilliant intrusion from the outside. He is a dawning light that pierces in from somewhere else and eradicates all of the darkness in His presence. In fact, as we consider this piece, and as you and I meditate on the Incarnation, Jesus' own brilliant intrusion, the eternal Word becoming flesh, and as we hear Isaiah's Word in our liturgy, you and I should hear echoes bouncing off the surfaces of other portions of Scripture. First, we surely hear echoes of creation. We have the Lord speaking. We have the coming of light. We have formless, chaotic, and void darkness. When with a word, God commands light into His creation. And then we should hear a second echo. When we think about creation, then we hear this second echo at the beginning of John's Gospel. It starts for us with the same phrase, in the beginning. And here we have the Father refusing to remain silent as He sends His eternal Word into the creation. Unlike the spoken Word of Genesis that commands light to appear on the scene, John tells us that Jesus, the eternal Word made flesh, is the light of the world. And this imagery signals for us that Jesus is not just coming to set a good example for us. He's not coming to help us out and lend us a hand. His incarnation is the dawning of the new creation. And what He's offering in His gospel is not a way to manage our dark brokenness. He's not offering you some cheap get-out-of-jail-free card. His gospel is the remaking of of everything. And that includes His people along with it. This new creation includes His light dawning in the midst of your own ground zero, in the midst of your own dark brokenness. It's almost like the first line of John's gospel could have read, in the new beginning when God remade the heavens and the earth. But this time around, the days won't be punctuated with that refrain, and there was evening and there was morning. Because as John tells us at the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus will be our perpetual light. We will live in perpetual day in this new creation. There is no longer evening. Only Jesus is the bright morning. Only the dawn that the creation has been remade. It is never night again. Jesus' incarnation is not something that we feel sentimental about and light candles. It is not just a good reason for you to unpack the good china and enjoy a meal with family. It is the dawn of His precious grace. It is His brilliant intrusion that interrupts our violent history, and remakes us completely. In the name of Jesus, the dawning of the new creation 
that has come to you through the eternal word made flesh. Amen. Can you pray with me? Father in heaven, you have seen our darkness, but you refuse to stay silent. You speak your eternal word into our brokenness. And in the incarnation of the Son, you are remaking everything. This season, as we meditate on and celebrate the festival of the incarnation, would you save us from our hurried schedules? Would you give us more of the peace of your intruding grace? Interrupt us with more of your creative kindness. Draw new worshipers to yourself through the good news of Jesus who lived and died and rose for us. And continue your work in us as your people, remaking us in his image by the power of your spirit. We ask all these things in the name and for the reputation of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.